This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 231. I am inviting Tammy Jonas for a wonderful, heartwarming discussion about food today and food sovereignty. So Tammy is the president of the Food Sovereignty Alliance, and uh, she is an agroecologist in principle and in practice. Along with her husband, Stuart, they raise heritage breed large black pastured pigs, cattle and garlic uh, on unceded lands of the Jaja Wurrung people in the central highlands of Victoria. They strive to care for country with grace and with respect for the Jarrah, their elders past, present and emerging. Tammy's been the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, AFSA, since 2014. And if you aren't familiar with their work, even if you're overseas, I think people who are passionate about food sovereignty should unite. Um, So often we see government groups, action groups trying to make us eat in, or now food tech groups as well, trying to make us eat in ways that may not feel intrinsically right for us, either from a health perspective, either from a religious beliefs and preferences perspective, or simply from what we witness as veggie patch gardeners, farmers, small or large scale, uh, and feel is our our right to do our best within what we know and within what we see works for both ourselves and the planet. That's why I'm so passionate about regenerative agriculture and my next book is largely focused on that. Uh, and so food sovereignty says, if you want to drink, uh, let's say raw milk, for example, why can you not? Uh, you know, if you have raised that cow, you, it, it should be your right. Or if you want to avoid pork products, or if you want to uh, eat vegan, or if you, you know, on and on we could go, it should be everyone's right to choose the food from within their local uh, resources within an ethical framework. Uh, And so uh, we'll talk a little bit about her work today, uh, but I really love Tammy's uh, past, her journey, what she does now. She's undertaking a PhD actually at the University of Western Western Australia on the biodiverse and decolonizing practicals of agroecological farmers and the technical, social and legislative enabling conditions for an agroecological transition in Australia. Pretty exciting stuff. So we'll hook into that conversation in just a little minute. I want to remind you that uh, from our wonderful show guest who kicked off our People and Planet series a couple of weeks ago, Jarvis Smith, um, that you can... Um, what's the word? I just missed it for a second there. Subscribe to My Green Pod. Uh, My Green Pod is a quarterly digital magazine. You would have heard me talk with Jarvis about his incredible partnerships founding the first eco-oriented magazine that existed with National Geographic many years ago 
and then on to partnerships with The Guardian. Uh, But now they're completely independent. And I can tell you right now, if you want to be at the forefront of what's happening in the world from a sustainability perspective, regenerative perspective, circular economic perspective, conscious capitalism perspective, whatever it is, uh, My Green Pod is a brilliant quarterly mag to sign up to. It's completely free. And the link is mygreenpod.com forward slash subscribe. So I'm giving them another shout out this week because I really want to make sure our community jumps onto that opportunity and knows about it. And then, of course, our wonderful show supporter this month, Republica Organic. You have one more week. You have the chance to win $200 worth of products from the Republica range. So you will decide what products you want to be in your $200 bundle. That for me is my favorite type of giveaway because you're choosing what your year's worth of free coffee looks like based on whether you're someone who has a pod machine and wants a more sustainable pod option or you have um, you like to grind your beans fresh and make your coffee that way or you like the pre-ground beans or you're an instant lover. Republica Coffee has it all. And I just wanted to highlight for you where you could actually buy Republica. Uh, Jacqueline Arias, the founder, was a real pioneer in the category of coffee and one of the first to make coffee widespread available through supermarkets and Costco. So, uh, and now, of course, for our American listeners, through Amazon. Um, so you have the Coles has the instant and the pods, the instant, they have the wonderful South American and, uh, decaf and the pods they have in 20 packs of the Paris, Sydney, Melbourne, and excitedly now decaf as well. And the pods are biodegradable to about the same rate as an orange peel. So it's extremely fast. It's bioplastics. It's a great way to avoid all the aluminium, uh, in pods as well. And, uh, they're just, it's a delicious coffee. And as someone who is very mold sensitive, coffee can sometimes, uh, have mold in it. And I can tell straight away, I get really bad palpitations from any decaf that is moldy. Uh, I do not have a single reaction to Republica coffee. So I just thought I'd throw that in for my fellow inflammation recovery peeps, because I know that's important to you guys as well. Uh, you can also get Republica Coffee at Woolworths, the organic Timor ground, which has won so many awards over the years. It's such a loved ground coffee by their community. Um, so if you haven't jumped on that one, it's absolutely beautiful. And of course, the signature espresso beans, if you like to grind fresh like I do. Uh, Costco as well has the Melbourne Laneway Ristretto beans. So uh, jump into uh, your local supermarket or Costco and support a wonderful Australian small brand. Uh, I buy a handful of things at the supermarket and I'm quite strategic with what that is. And they really, it's a very pointed purchase to send a message to all the buying uh, computers out there that these are the things that I want. Uh, And they're all really ethical, fantastic small businesses and, um, and beautifully made and produced. Um, And I think that's a a great way to see supermarkets as a potential for positive change Um, because, like it or not, they do make things available to the wider community uh, and regional communities as well. I know a lot of people that I've visited over the years find that regional option to have a big supermarket means that they can actually get fresh produce all year round and that can be a make or break for families who are trying to eat healthy. So... um, 
that's my shout out on in terms of what you can get where. And then I just wanted to, I mentioned that they'd won some awards. Uh, they've won the Signature Espresso, a silver award, Signature Espresso bronze uh, and Melbourne Laneway Espresso uh, bronze as well. Um, they've been going for 16 years uh, and it's very exciting to see that you can now get it in North America as well. So that is our wonderful sponsor. Don't forget to jump to the show notes, hit the comments and just say that you would love to win $200 worth of your selection of products from the Republica range. And we will be drawing the winner on the fourth week of the month. So next Monday, so you'll know who the winner is and, uh, and you'll be able to go out and grab some Republica if you don't win. So either way you win. Now here is my conversation with the wonderful Tammy Jonas. Uh, I, I feel I felt really, um, really good about choosing to write the second book that I've written as I send it off to the printers uh, this week. Uh, after having a conversation with Tammy, it just felt like a sign that I was absolutely on the right track, and this book needed to be born. And I know Tammy is uh, writing um, as well at the moment, and I just can't wait to share this conversation with you. So I won't enjoy, guys. Hello, Tammy. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Alex. How are you? I am great. Uh, I am beyond excited to have this conversation today. I can't quite believe I've had a podcast for four years and haven't reached out to you yet. I'm feeling a little embarrassed about that, but (laughs) better late than never, right? I've followed your work and the work of the ASFA for a long time. Um, Very inspiring work and um, not afraid to tackle big topics, are you? No, not at all. Right now we're about to take on the uh, regulation of agriculture and veterinary chemicals, actually, in a review tomorrow. Nice. Just a small part-time project then. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Tammy, can I ask, I'm always fascinated uh, as to how people grew up and what it looked like for you in terms of the window into when your lights came on about different subjects and things that led you to uh, the work that you do today. Yeah, it's all, it always surprises people, I think, to learn that I grew up on entirely industrial food, but I also grew up on a cattle ranch in Oregon. So on the one hand, we were we were raising cattle and and then sending them off, I, I guess, to feedlots is what my dad tells me. Um, but I didn't know that as a kid. I just knew we raised cattle. And, uh, and yet in our kitchen was entirely uh, tins and boxes of processed food. I didn't, I didn't know broccoli came fresh I thought it only came frozen in a box and I hated it um and yeah so that was that was sort of the upbringing but then I had these inklings of being interested in delicious food you know when I would be exposed to it but I wasn't exposed to it very often when I left uh when I left home I because I came from a pretty conservative family when I left home I joined um a movement against the Gulf War in 91 and that exposed me to a lot of vegetarians and people talking about um, Im- the impact of our actions on the world in ways that I hadn't thought about in my rural upbringing in Oregon. And I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation and learned how animals are treated, pigs and poultry in particular, are treated in industrial agriculture. And in my little 19-year-old self had no solution except to become a vegetarian overnight. So, And that started a lifelong interest in how food is produced um, and what it means for, First, my first concern was about animals, but then it, of course, inevitably leads to 
well, what about everything else, you know, from how we produce our food and then what it does to us once we consume it. And there are all these little light bulb moments. Like when I was before that, even when I was 18, they told me I had high cholesterol because, and it's genetic in our family. They put me on a, um, uh, margarine only heart smart margarine oh goodness and I know and, and well all these the- days they call that plant-based butter to oh give it God. a sexy new appeal <laughs> oh and it should be banned but yeah but here I was knowing nothing about food systems but I one day I went to melt this margarine in the in the microwave to put on some popcorn and after a whole minute in the microwave it hadn't melted and even without any of the knowledge that I have now I looked at that as an 18 year old and went that can't be good for me. And I threw it away and I've never had margarine again in my life. And, and again, there are all those little moments that I look back to and I think, oh, I had an idea. There were, there were problems. And I just started trying to find out what those problems were. Yeah. Similar experience, just nearly a decade later when it comes right. to my life. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, you know, because something is normal and everywhere, you don't, it's much less likely that you would question it. You need moments of big resistance like medical situations or things that really call you to start thinking out of the box yeah that's right I actually we, we just had our we, we've just turned 50 but my husband and I and so oh, wow congratulations uh, I, thank you so I had my we had blood tests done and all these things and we're waiting on results and the doctor said what will you what will happen if you have high cholesterol because we talked about that story from when I was 18 and I said we'll keep cooking everything in animal fat and she goes but will you give up butter and I'm like no and she said, so what will you do? And I said, probably nothing. I have a, a really healthy whole foods diet. I don't eat any processed food. And um, the debate around cholesterol is so intensely uh, irritating and inconsistent. I'm just going to keep leading a really healthy life and uh, see how that goes. Yeah. I also don't know the results yet. So, oh, okay. Well, good. It sounds like a good plan anyway. Um, so did you always want to be a farmer? How on earth did you end up in Australia? Um, well, I didn't know I wanted to be a farmer, although I guess I knew I wanted to be on land. I'd been being raised on land. You kind of have it in you, right? Mm. Uh, but then I had the fascination with cities and being, I wanted to be, you know, this chic city girl who understood the sophisticated life of the city. <laughs> and I, I went off on a one-way ticket to London uh, as a backpacker where I met Stuart within the first week. Oh, wow. And, um, but we we have this hilarious early relationship story of walking the cliffs of Wales together and me regaling him with stories about how I was going to, I was still vegetarian at the time, remember, but I was going to have this property near Boulder, Colorado, and I was going to have all the animals and we were going to have a place where artists and rioters could come and spend time. And I was going to have all the animals, goodness knows what I was going to do with these animals because I was vegetarian, (laughs) but this was this bucolic dream. And he's sort of going, I can't really see you doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We love we love that story because here we are, you know, doing exactly what I said, but I'm no longer a vegetarian, obviously. And you're no longer in uh, Colorado. No, definitely not. That's right. And I'm not at all unhappy with my decision to leave America. I think it was a really good decision, especially looking at them now. Um, but yeah, I, I knew I wanted to be on land, but it took us until um, until actually hearing Joel Salatin talk about uh, how you could make a living as a small scale farmer. That was the that was the missing link for us was how could we live on a property and earn a living and then and then when somebody says you can do that farming it's very obvious that that's how you can be on a property but up until him we'd always been told you can't make a living farming so it didn't seem like a realistic aim and yeah. then suddenly it did he's an incredible educator really uh, amazing books to help people 
bridge those gaps of knowledge in terms of business building, um, not just the romance of being on land. Yeah. Um, and so can I ask, because in the intro, obviously, I introduced your role uh, at um, with um, Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Um, what is food sovereign, sovereignty to people who aren't familiar with that? What does it really mean in the broadest definition? Then we'll go a bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, the definition is, um, for me, really simple. It's, the, it's about everybody's right to eat food, right? And food that is produced in ethical and ecologically sound ways. Um, and, and then our right to, to determine what those systems look like together, to, to have a say in what the food system is. So, I mean, for some people, an obvious example of that is like the raw milk debate. Some people believe that farmers should have a right to sell that, even if it's just to their neighbors or locals, they should have a right to sell that milk and others should have a right to purchase that milk. And there should be like anything else that has um, regulations or guidelines for safety, just like we have for salami and cheese and everything else. Um, and, and that one's for some people that's too contentious raw milk, but let's now take, I don't know, take salami as an example. Salami is a potentially high risk um, is that annoying? Is that noise? Sorry. No, no, fine. Okay. Um, salami is a potentially high risk food, right? But we have we have regulations around to make it safer. So we would argue in the food sovereignty movement that any food um, should have the capacity to be available, any whole food especially, to be available to people if they want to have it. Um, and and also people should have a say in whether there's poison in their food, right? So you should have a right to say, I don't want pesticides on my food and to know whether they're there and, um, and what you could do to ensure that they're not. So food sovereignty is here to say, we want everyone to have that right to determine whether your food is poisonous, whether your food is healthy, whether you, whether you can grow it here, whether I can raise pigs here or, and cattle, those things should be in the hands of the people. Mm, brilliant. Um, great description. Now you've mentioned pigs as you have there. Um, what else do you farm? So we have pastured pigs and cattle and we also sell, we also have um, a small crop of garlic that we now do. Ah, uh, which nice. Came about as part of the nutrient cycling on the farm because of having a butcher shop here on our farm, we have bones after we've made bone broths. And then what do you do with those? We pyrolyze them, which means you um, put them under intense heat to turn them into like a biochar or in our case, a bone char. And that then goes into our biofertilizers to make, to then grow garlic and extract some nutrient from here and sell that in a beautiful, delicious form. Amazing. Um, we farmed garlic on my mum in law's little property down in Mossvale. And uh, it is tough work, garlic farming. Oh, we find it one of the easier things we do. <laughs> oh, really? Oh my gosh. I'm not cut out for farming. <laughs> I'll need to come train with you when it's the a great when crop because you get it in in the late autumn and then you let it do its thing over winter and come yeah. spring or come late spring there's a harvest. I mean the cleaning and curing and everything is definitely a bit of work. Yeah, but it was good fun. We got friends to do it with us every year and um yeah, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, at a small scale it's quite a lovely social activity. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was just an acre so it wasn't anything too crazy. Yeah. Um so you mentioned pigs, you mentioned vegetarianism. Bridge the gap for me there on what happened. Yes, so I think some people think it's weird that a former vegetarian is now a, a pig farmer and a butcher. Um, it's actually unbelievably common in terms yeah, of people that I've spoken to. It's incredibly common because yeah. I, 
I think what it speaks to with people like me, and there are plenty of us, um, is the rejection of those things we couldn't control, which is the treatment of those animals. Yeah, 100%. Which leads inevitably to the full control of the system to ensure that the standards you think those animals should be raised in are being met. You know, so it's an extreme form of DIYism, but we're Stuart and I are well known for it. So um, yeah, so I think that's that's the journey in short. It was the slowly but surely going from a rejection of industrial meat to uh, coming back and trying to find uh, meat from animals raised in systems that I could support, finding that actually quite difficult, realizing we needed more animals grown in this way so that more people like me when I was still in the city would have access and then coming to do exactly that. And then the butchery becomes part of the story because it's a, it's a necessity in a small scale system, really. Yeah, of course. And what made you personally feel like you needed meat in the first place? Well, in my case, in my third pregnancy, I actually got horrendously anemic. So I had had two very successful um, vegetarian pregnancies. I, it's, it's interesting looking back at the photos to see how, um, how pale I actually was. Um, that, that in fact, I wasn't, I mean, I was always borderline, just not quite anemic during those first pregnancies. But the third one, I couldn't do anything about it. And I did the, um, I was trying to have, you know, Floridix, the, the liquid iron. Um, and I was having parsley and pineapple juice until I was turning green and nothing was solving it. And I just one day was sitting at work and thought a burger would fix this. I just, I just had this image of like rare red meat. And I thought that would make me feel better. And that's what I did. I went and had red meat and I did literally feel better, but within a day. And, and so I went back to red meat at, in the beginning, just once or twice a week. Uh, because cattle and sheep aren't treated so poorly like pigs and poultry. And then it, that started a much longer journey to understand how to access meat from um, pigs or poultry. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, when I was researching my book, uh, it, one of the things that I really came to see very clearly was that diet wars are a privilege in and of themselves. Uh, and some people just don't function well on certain diets. Some people thrive, good on you in either case. Totally. Um, but when you look more deeply at Indigenous rights, at developing countries, you know, I was looking at, um, can't remember which country it was in Africa. I'm thinking it was Uganda, but a woman has the right to keep a cow and run a business that way, but she does not have a right to own land and grow crops. So while we all fight in our ivory towers, our little city diet wars, um, and write trendy cookbooks and, uh, you know, about paleo or keto or vegan or whatever, um, you know, I, I, I often think, like, do we have, like, if she was sitting right next to me now, would I dare have a diet war with her? Of course I would not. Um, and, and that really speaks to food sovereignty, doesn't it? It really, um, it really woke me up to a much deeper, much broader understanding that the average human needs um, to just back away and go bio-individual. And if we all focus on sourcing and backing great farming methods, uh, we would create huge change that everyone by and large meets in the middle over some really fantastic overlaps. Yeah, I think if we're going to have debates about um, the ethics or, or ecologies of diets, um, 
or health of diets. I think that, as you say, that they are quite individual in terms of what works, like what worked for me in the first two pregnancies simply didn't by the third. And that probably is a factor of third pregnancy and age and all of those things. Um, and I don't think that the third pregnant third pregnancy version of me should have attacked the earlier ones or vice versa for, for what we were eating. Mm. Um, and I think we should we should be attacking the systems that need to change. Hundred percent. And supporting yeah. everybody's right to eat in a way that's going to make them feel good and healthy. Mm. That's the thing that pains me the most. I think is that in like unjust systems don't get fought. They don't get attacked enough people end up fighting each other and it's so futile and damaging to families, to friends. Um, it, is. it is. And you know, when I was a young vegetarian, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, I was um, righteous and dogmatic in the beginning. And I said the wrong things to my family about my vegetarianism and how they should be thinking more about theirs. And it did not, it did not change how they ate. All it did was damage our relationship. And as I got older, I realized that a much better way to even feed my parents instead of trying to make them be vegetarian, feed them the, the exactly the same things they like eating, say it's a steak and potatoes. But then if I have control over it, I choose them from a source that I agree with. And if I'm at their house, I just shut up and eat what's on the table. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 100%. Okay. So where shall we go next? I, um, I would like to ask you about um, well-managed animals and biodiversity because I think this is a, a hugely untapped understanding for a lot more people to really think about where their food's coming from and for a lot less people to feel ashamed for feeling like they thrive on an omnivorous diet because there are a lot of people who feel quite ashamed about that at the moment and um, and to know that pretty much no matter what you eat, plant or animal, something dies. Some animal gets killed in a field, unfortunately, you know, but it is the cycle of life and we're so disconnected from nature that I feel like we don't understand that we're part of all these cycles of life. Um, there's something living and dying all the time. And so in animal agriculture done in the many right ways that there are to do, depending on landscape, climate, etc. What would you like for people to understand better about um, the power of symbiotic agriculture? Yeah, I think I think that modern society has a has a, and actually governments have a really bad habit of trying to simplify everything. And and so the argument for just becoming vegetarian or vegan, for that matter, so no animal products, these are all very simple responses to complex problems. And and as you say, something dies in every system and. In the case of if it's if you have if you're an ethical uh, vegan and you so you really don't want people eating animals because you think that's an unethical position, you you're welcome to hold that view. That's where your ethics sit. That's fine, but don't mistake that for the healthiest ecosystem, because the healthiest ecosystem is not devoid of animals. We need we need every level of species um, to be in place in an ecosystem for it to function well and healthily. So, so I think. There are two, I, I like to think of those particular issues about the role of eating animals or not eating animals separately and uh, in terms of ethics or, or ecosystems. And, and so in an ecosystem sense, it's like undeniable that we need animals in the system. You know, I've had, I've had somebody once say to me in terms of how we fertilize our, um, 
you know, gardens and things, how you fertilize vegetables. They're like, but we solve that problem with modern society. We have superphosphate. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> we solve the problem of the ethics of eating animals with mining? Like, yeah. are you yeah. kidding me? You know, this yeah. is an outrageous solution. Mm. Um, but it's doing us absolutely no good. So, so while I think that there's a lot of this messaging from governments and marketing kind of gurus to simplify things for people and make it easier for you to go, oh, God, I've got that then. I just won't eat animals. I actually think most people prefer a more complex life. I, I don't think people are afraid of the complexity. It's just what the simplicity is what they're sold. So how much more interesting is it to go, oh, wow. So what does that mean? If Tammy says that animals are important in ecosystems, what does it mean? Well, when animals shit somewhere, are we allowed to swear? Sorry. Yeah, you can. Go for it. <laughs> Part of what's happening there, especially um, are the animals with a rumen like cattle, they're dropping beautiful bacteria into the soil that is supporting all of the microbiology in that soil. And if you take a monoculture system of broccoli, say, broccoli super good for us, right? But now let's plant out, you know, 20 acres of broccoli in monoculture and there will be no life in that soil. There will be, they'll be running through it with um, chemical fertilizers that are, that are inorganic. They're not alive. And so in doing that, you have a, you have, or take, take, um, God forbid, hydroponic tomatoes, you know, they don't even, they don't even grow in soil. They're just, you know, they're like, they're like tomatoes. I think of them as though they're in an intensive care unit. I actually think like when my mom. Yeah, it's like fruit and veg on life support. That's exactly what I thought. I remember a company reached out and they said, we'd love to send you a kit, a system, you know, for growing. I think it was like different types of lettuces and tomatoes in your, on your kitchen bench and. I did my research. I was like, oh, okay, so it's hydroponics. And it was a few years ago. I was like, do I even really know what hydroponics is all about? And so I researched it and I was like, oh, that doesn't really <laughs> make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think everyone needs to be watching this space. You know, the tech gurus, the ones who stand to make a lot of money from all of us are selling us on a plant-based diet that they will manufacture for us. So I still think a plant-based diet is great for lots of people. You know, it's, I, I personally am not um, supportive of a vegan diet because I think that any diet that by definition has to be supplemented in this case with B12 is not a complete diet. So, um, but a vegetarian diet, you know, you look at, you look at millions of people in India are still on a vegetarian diet, but they're also the greatest dairy consumers in the world. Um, so, and, you know, dairy is a really important source of so many of the um, vitamins and minerals that we need. And um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, I that's got- okay. You were talking about the hydroponic tomatoes on life support. Yes. Uh, but again, ah, <laughs> <laughs> just- oh, we went on a big tangent. Oh, and we're, we we're lost. We did, uh, but I will just on that on that point of the um, tomatoes on life support. We any oh that's right any solution they sell you that doesn't involve soil is a false solution. You know, like you cannot, you cannot simply say, we're going to grow all our food now in labs. We're going to grow it. I mean, the new thing is growing vegetables indoors. That's the the increasing push. And they're saying, this will save us all of this land. We'll spare all of this land for conservation and wilderness and biodiversity. But we need biodiversity in our agriculture systems, not separate from them. And that's why right now the UN has the... Um, the Convention on Biological Diversity is working on a global biodiversity framework 
for the next at least decade, maybe two, they might rewrite it in a decade. But agriculture is really central to it because they've realized if 60% of the land mass in the world is actually cultivated, then we need biodiversity on that 60%, right? We can't stop reducing biodiversity where we grow food, but we can maintain it. Like our farm is an incredibly biodiverse place. And in places like India, where 80% of the food is produced on less than two hectares, that's an incredibly biodiverse space as well. They're all mixed farmers. They don't just farm one thing. They farm many things and they interact with each other, including the dung from their cattle that they do have even when they don't eat them. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. Um, I'm from Mauritius on my mum's side. And that's like a little Indian island. Um, I think it's about 70% Indian population. And when you drive along the countryside, yes, you see a whole bunch of monocrop sugar fields, but you also see a lot of tiny little parcels of like half acre, quarter acre, um, sometimes even less. And in this big garden, you'll see a few rows of veggies, some chickens running around and one cow just kind of in the corner and it's all working together and it's like there are so many insects and it's lush and you can just tell it's healthy exactly and actually I can give you a really personal example from here on our farm um we have we have two plots of nine rows for the garlic to rotate so that one year it's in one and the next year it's in the other so that we don't end up with any disease burden and we change the nutrient requirement um from those beds this year on the new set of garlic beds, I've put a green manure in. So um, that's a mixture of sorghum and millet and buckwheat and lucerne. And these are all things that will help fix more nitrogen and get that soil ready for this year's garlic crop. Instead of coming in and slashing those, which was my original plan, one, one day Clarabelle, the house gal, was walking on the fence just behind that those beds. And I'm like, wait a minute, I have a mower. Yes. <laughs> Four legs and she'll <laughs> fertilize while she's there. So yeah, brilliant. She'll be moving in to mow the green manure and then we'll put straw over that to finish killing those plants before winter and then we'll plant our garlic in there and there will be no fossil fuels used. There'll be no synthetic fertilizers. There'll be nothing except a cow and some soil and some good hard labor from the farmers to get everything ready. Um, in an industrial system, as you would, as you well know, it involves tractors that are running on diesel. It involves synthetic fertilizers that are made of petrochemicals, you know, a whole raft of um, unnecessary inputs and that results in dead soil that grows food that isn't very nutrient dense. Mm, yeah. And in terms of um, chemical inputs, can we talk a little bit more about um, why they're not so great in um in agriculture because I, I genuinely believe a lot of people just don't understand. Look, chemicals are not all um, kind of created equally, right? So there's the, they're the ones that are now banned because we found out they were so damaging. We ended up with babies with birth defects, you know, take mm. DDT or something. DDT, exactly. um, so, so we know that some are so dangerous, they shouldn't be in the system at all. Actually, I'm sure that you've probably at some point talked about trans fats in your, right. So, that was hailed as the new the new way to, to feed us margarine and then found to be so dangerous that they had to ban it, um, you know, the production of anything with trans fats. So ag agriculture and veterinary chemicals are the same. Um, some of these things are so dangerous and others are not. So one of the things that they talk about with glyphosate or Roundup, which is the most um, commonly used herbicide, is that in itself, 
it is not um, considered to be an incredibly dangerous chemical. Like it's not going to cause birth defects today. Um, it's about repeated exposure and it's about, and it's about the fact that Roundup is everywhere. People are using it on their lawns in the suburbs. We're using it on farms of every sort. And so it's the, it's the ubiquity. It's the fact that it's everywhere. So we need to, in a, in a holistic sense with chemicals, we need to be thinking about how much of them is being used, um, how soon before consumption of those things being used, an increasing practice in, in grain production, especially wheat, I think, they, they desiccate with chemicals, which means they basically kill it off towards the end to cause a bit of stress that gets a bigger head growth on the grain. Um, and then they come through and they slush and they get this, you know, bigger wheat crop, right? They're doing it closer and closer to harvest because they're finding they get that, that last burst is, is bigger. They, you know, they're going to get more wheat. That means it's closer to the time when you and I eat it. So I don't see how that can possibly be a good thing. We definitely be moving in the direction of any chemical application should at least be happening at a further space before consumption, not closer. Um, right now, there's a review of the regulations for ag and vet chemicals. I'm speaking at a, a panel tomorrow on this with the, um, uh, they're reviewing the APVMA, which is the regulator for chemicals. And it's outrageous. And I think people should be upset by this review because it's been largely, um, determined by the industry led by the likes of CropLife, which um, represent the largest sort of chemical producers in the world. And uh, the, the result is this review, it's, it's framing is how can we increase Australian farmers access to AgVet chemicals? And you're like, this is at a time when the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, the Committee on Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, all these, all these global bodies are saying, we have got to reduce chemical use. It's polluting our waterways, it's polluting our land, and it's making our people sick. So how can we use less of them? Meanwhile, the Australian government is pushing ahead with how can we increase Australia's access to chemicals? So given that's the case here in Australia, it seems to me that the most important person we need to convince is the farmer who's farming conventionally. How do you, and I'm sure this is a part of your work at the Alliance, how do you play a role in non-confrontational, welcoming, kind of curiosity-inducing uh, education to help gently wake people up to a different way of doing things? Because when you're so built into the system, I could imagine you know, you're a broadacre farmer, your dad did it this way, grandpa did it this way. Um, all these new chemicals were heralded as saviors to help you earn more money and make farming easier. Farming's a tough gig, man. So that is a powerful message. Um, how do you guys help people see that things could be even better? Well, I guess happily, that progress is happening with and in spite of us, um, I'm pleased about. So the regenerative agriculture movement in this country is probably pushing 25 years old, even though people didn't hear about it until more recently. And the large, some of the biggest broadacre farmers in Australia have been selling the message better than AFSA ever could, because let's be fair, most broadacre farmers do not, you know, multi-gen broadacre farmers, no matter how gentle I am, they don't want to listen to a first gen small scale farmer. They don't, they'll, they'll basically say that our system doesn't apply to them 
which to a certain extent is true. One of the um, one of the distinctions between the membership base for the Food Sovereignty Alliance and um, say the, the broad acre regen ag movement is that they're still selling into commodity markets. So they're, they're quite separate from us. We're selling directly to the people who eat our food. And that distinction does change things. But having said that, the likes of Charles Massey, you know, with his book called The Reed Warbler um, and the Regen Ag Alliance, which APSA is a member of at Southern Cross University and, and multiple consultants. I'm not here to be any kind of fan of consultants. I'm, I normally think that we should have less of them. Um, having said that, they've shifted to teaching more regenerative practices and they are reaching those broad acre farmers. I mean, even the MLA, the Meat and Livestock Australia, uh, announced last year or the year before that they were aiming for zero net emissions um, by, I think, early, pretty early, like 2025 or something. So, so there's incredible movement happening in that space of broad acre farmers. And, and then for them, it's just that question of, yeah, how do we do this? And you have the likes of Colin Sice, who's the pasture cropping kind of guru in Australia, uh, going around and teaching them, well, this is how you do it. And and they talk in No-Till Victoria, also a really wonderful organization that is um, teaching people how they can reduce their chemical use until a point where hopefully they could stop it entirely. Most of them are still using some, but my word, so much less than they were. And, and we should all be grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exciting that at least the grassroots movement looks like it's making progress. So where, where's the disconnect then? Why do the guys at the top in government seem to think we need more access to harm, harmful chemicals? Because the people who represent the farmers there are actually the input supplier reps, literally. Gotcha. Yeah. You know? So like it's, it's the not, same as the States. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not Joe Farmer. Mm. You know, it's, it's Joe Crop Life. Yeah. So and it's a lobbyist, basically. A lobbyist, yeah. yeah. That's a really dangerous voice to have leading those conversations, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, we we've, think it's really important that we are there with a different perspective and a different voice. And we work closely with some others like the Pesticide Action Networks and things um, to get those voices in there. But it's really hard. The government wants to listen to big industry, not to us. Mm. And, you know, imagine everyone in diet wars and what you should eat wars knowing about this real issue going on, like a big issue that we could all imagine all that energy focused yeah. on advocacy in that space. So that's, it's funny you say that because just this morning we had this brainwave. My husband, Stuart and I are going to do a trip up North in July, August um, to run some agroecology workshops with small scale farmers. But then we're traveling all through rural Eastern Australia. And we thought, you know what, let's do a bit of an AFSA roadshow and um, and reach out to the broader public. So do the farming workshops with our farmers, but then do the public facing work, not workshops, but like um, basically town hall revolutionary kind of you know, talks is what we want to do and have those be a mixture of how can those people collectively work against what's happening at the government level? How, what do they need to do and know to be able to, to fight that system? Uh, And how can we help? And then the other part of it, I was thinking about it because we'll be going through places like Dubbo and, um, and, you know, a lot of rural places that are, don't, don't generally have the privilege of these dietary wars, you know, to be having what they have is like, well, where, where do you want me to buy my food, Tammy? You say that we should be eating only pastured meat, but where do I get that? So we're thinking that part of the roadshow should be, yeah. How do you eat in a food sovereign way in Dubbo? 
you know, like I'm super interested in, in doing that with these people and finding out well, the community will tell us because the ones who've been figuring out how to do it will be able to now hopefully reach a broader audience of, well, here's how you can find vegetables from a system you feel comfortable eating them. Mm, well, chapter three in my book is exactly that, you know, and I was inspired to write that chapter from a talk I gave in uh, Karatha in WA, uh, which was a mining town. You have to travel, I think, about two and a bit hours by plane uh, from Perth to get there. Middle of nowhere, really remote. Um, and uh, it was a, a talk on all things low-tox life, so food, body, home, mind, kind of did a bit of a broad sprawl. And in the food section, of course, in the Q&A, people then start saying, so how and, you know, when, and I decided we needed to figure out a way. And I knew there were a couple of really gung-ho local champions there that wouldn't just complain. They'd, they'd find a way to make it happen if the ideas came together. And every community has those people. Um, and... So I talked about some of the things that we had done in some other towns with bits that were, you know, more connected, like say to Woomba or um, Bathurst and um, on my roadshow and how, you know, if you go to your local butcher or, you know, which could even be the Woolies guy really, like because they order things based on what customers want, they still have systems that can do that. And you say, I have 20 friends that would buy two organic chickens a month so there's 40 organic chickens that I can guarantee you we would order from you if you brought them in. I don't care if they're frozen. I, you know, it's more about the access to what we want to eat. Uh, and then you did that. So for, you know, you could do the same for beef, whatever. Then you do the same for a box delivery fruit and veg. Find out, even if it's five hours away, the closest um, mixed farms and say, look, I've got 20 families that would buy a big box of mixed fruit and veg a week. Um, if you would deliver once a week, um, we're happy to prepay every week so that you know you've got the orders. Um, we can set up an online system. Would you do that? You know, and you just start to have these. It is possible. And, and we just need to want it. We need to be clear enough as to why we want it in the first place and then start actually making it happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it'll be it'll be good to be able to reach more people and help them because so I'm many, excited for you. That's going to be great. In my experience, most people, and you would have found the same. Most people don't want to eat rubbish. No. Like they, and most people don't want to eat something that they think might be poisoning their family, mm. but many don't feel they have a choice or don't, don't know how to, how to pursue that choice. Um, and some of them live in places where it actually is quite difficult and will take a fair bit of organization. So um, yeah, I'd like to keep helping with that project. Yeah, and after amazing. the next book, actually, you know, our, our last book was Farming Democracy. Mm. And um, the, the one we're working on now is called Eating Democracy. Uh, that's the working title. We'll see if it changes. But I love it. Yeah, it's a collection of stories of how are people doing this in diverse parts of Australia with diverse households, um, types and sizes. Brilliant. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait to shout out about that. When's it coming out? Well, we're still writing it at the moment. We're, mm -hmm. just, we're just doing the call out for authors, actually. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, there's um I'll have a think about some people I might be you able to. You should, yeah. To. Yeah. Um, okay, so <sighs> let's talk about innovation because this is a tricky one. The whole uh, you know, we've touched on it briefly already, but it's so important for people to really start to understand the impact of tech romance at a time like this when we are being um, 
uh, when our soil is dying. You know, we don't have much great topsoil left around the world. Uh, this is not a, oh, sometime in the future. This is our grandkids. Um, so that's very real. Uh, and again, a war that's worth fighting <laughs> instead of the superfluous ones we tend to engage in because big corporates want us to fight each other rather than them. And um, and so I'm, I'm fearful that the whole romance of entrepreneurialism and tech of the past 20 years is sending us down um, a dangerous path of uh, of disconnecting even further from what is natural and good and true instead of being a crunch time for us to start moving towards what is natural and good and true. What are your views on what we can do at the grassroots level? Um, obviously, it all happens from changing our shopping trolley. I get that. But that next kind of level up, you know, what do we need to start identifying around us uh, to advocate for um, for produce uh, and farming being the answer, not technology necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. They can meet sometimes, of course. It needs to be technologically sound, yeah, I mean, the running of a farm. There's a place yeah. for technology. Yeah, of course. So it's yeah. not anti-tech but rather more discerning of the tech being brought forward to us as somehow appealing. Yeah. One of my food sovereignty testing questions is... Um, Somebody presents a solution. Let's take lab meat as an example. So, you know, meat produced in a test tube or a petri dish somewhere and then um, fed to us as the solution to the problems of industrial meat. Wow, that sounds great. It means we get animals out of sheds, right? So, and there's a technology to do this. That sounds great. My first testing question is, can people control that? Can, can the people on the ground, can I be involved in the production? No, I have to have a lab. I have to, oh, wait, and I have to have access in the case of lab meat. To millions to, of dollars of capital funding. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, but also <laughs> to calves pulled out of coal cows. They take dairy cows that are being killed and they take, when they're pregnant, they take their unborn calves and extract the serum, bovine growth serum, directly from their heart to start the medium to grow lab meat. So, so like, is it even... Is it even the ethical solutions? Like, look a little further. It's not hard to get that information, actually. It's pretty well known mm. if following the lab meat thing. So well, Diane Rogers has done a lot of work on demystifying yeah. lab meat. Yeah. Absolutely. Diane's a great advocate in that space. Mm. Um, but so for me, the first question is, can can the people control the solution? Yeah. Can we have great a great question? The um, solution. And if the first answer is no, then my answer is, then I'm not interested in that solution. And and the allure of, of tech solutions, my word, the tech bros out there wanting to sell us all their cool stuff just does my head in. <laughs> I am not interested in Mr. Schmick and the latest solution that he's, you know, super entrepreneurial and innovative. The best innovators, in my experience, are farmers. And they innovate with a piece of bailing twine, you know, to fix something. They don't do it with a lab and millions of Bill Gates dollars. In fact, nobody gives money to the most innovative people in the world, in my experience. Um, and they don't ask for it usually either. They're just out there quietly innovating on their farms all the time to solve problems every day without a whole bunch of money. And if you, can, if you can see the faces behind the solution too, that's a much better answer. So sure, maybe you're not going to go farm animals. So you still need a solution that is somebody else doing the growing 
but can you find out who grew that? Can you have a connection to that person? So I guess that's the other thing with technology. Think about the, the connectedness in the system. If you aren't connected to the solution besides your dollars at a supermarket, that's not a connection, you know, like at all. Um, and you bought a thing, another thing in a box rather than a thing that was from life, right? So yeah. I was like, really fascinated with the study um, out of the University of Michigan quite recently, a few months ago, um, that showed the uh, the carbon footprint of Beyond Burger versus a regen farmed burger patty. And you would have to eat two regen farmed burger patties to offset your one Beyond Burger, which costs <laughs> you, by the way, three times as much as your regen farmed burger patty. Uh, but also if you just want to eat more plant-based foods, literally eat more plants they're delicious chickpeas what was wrong with chickpeas they're delicious chickpea burger patty is so beautiful oh good in there not too many so it's not mealy and it's lovely yeah i know it's 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 the romance of big tech big food something new and exciting and we're so deeply entrenched this morning Mm. that people follow narcissists and it was a piece of research, I think it was in the conversation today um, or yesterday, about a study that showed that the more kind of narcissistic and, you know, bullshit artist you are, the more people are willing to follow you. And I think we should be. I think, I we think we've learned that. <laughs> I think, well, and, but I think we should be making a bigger deal about that research because people do follow bullshit artists all, all the time. And, and then wonder why they didn't end up with the satisfying kind of, you know, solutions that they had hoped for. They got swindled again. And it's like, keep falling for narcissists. Actually, don't, don't fall for the shiniest thing. It's not actually that shiny when you look beyond the, um, yeah, beyond the reflection. So I think technology for me is not the answer. It is their tools that might help us with the various solutions we're looking for. But anybody who thinks a big, the biggest new tech find is the answer is talking rubbish. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the thing that gets me is uh, also when I was exploring that, because, you know, I'm always open to exploring new uh, ideas that may or may not benefit. But you have to explore and you have to think deeply and you have to research deeply. And I started looking at how much energy would require the temperature controlled setting um, to be powered. Um, of course, initially that would probably happen with fossil fuels in our current world. Maybe in a couple of decades it would happen with solar panels. But then think about the amount of solar panels you'd need. And then, of course, the solar panels are then the conduits for the light and then the growth is happening through the energy from the solar panels. It's like what was wrong with sun, plants? Wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. And ruminants. That was a kind of pretty good system we had going there. But something a lot of people don't understand and um, a lot of things we get told are, um, yeah, but we never had this many ruminants. And I think when, when you research, we actually had so many more in the wild yeah. um, herds of yesteryear. Yeah. We actually had more. And I think that's that's also the carbon cycle is worth uh, people understanding. And I, I, I'm guessing you've spoken here about it before. but I have, but let's go again. You know, people yeah, might like be I, new today. I think some people aren't um, across the difference between basically the fast carbon cycle and the fossil carbon cycle. And um, Diane actually talks about it in, in her book. Um, what is it? The Sacred Cow. 
Yes, they could come. Um, the point being, the carbon that's the, the emissions from cattle are part of a, a pretty brief cycle that's going that's then sequestered back into soil very quickly um, to be well. And if you're in a healthy grassland or healthy forests, then it'll be sequestering for longer. An interesting fun fact: sheep actually sequester carbon in their wool. So by producing wow. producing wool is actually carbon sequestration. Fascinating. Amazing. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, I only learned that a couple of years ago and I was like, whoa, all these mm. little walking carbon sequestration, you know, it's yeah. so good. Um, and then by, by shearing them and keeping that in, in clothing, we're actually sequestering it for quite a long time. Mm. You know, try that with your synthetic fibers. Um, and, and then there's the fossil uh, carbon cycle, which of course, industrial agriculture is really heavily reliant on um, as are highly processed food production. So the fossil fuels inherent, not only in the running of the machinery to make, to produce the things behind the, the highly processed foods, um, but also the, again, the fossil fuels in the fertilizers, the fossil fuels in the packaging, the plastic packaging, all of those things contribute to us mining more ancient carbon out of the out of the earth that we cannot replace with any any number of trees or offsets you want to do um, and i think that's another important point for people to understand in terms of the question of offsets or net zero emissions so when we talk about offsets it's like saying okay if i plant a bunch of trees here that will offset um these companies you know major use of, of fossil fuels right but it doesn't take away the fact that they are they continued with the mining and they continued with the emissions. Yeah, you can't offset the whole world is my expression. And the yeah. fast carbon cycle cannot offset the entire fossil carbon uh, cycle. Like it's impossible. Um, and then when we talk about net zero emissions, we go, okay, but that's achieved a net zero. But even so in, in doing the offsetting, when we continued with the emitting, we didn't start to solve any of the problems of, for ex in particular, extractive industries. Like mining, as we know it, needs to stop as soon as we possibly can. But that that has to stop. Not not cattle on grass. That's a that's like a blip on the radar of what our emissions problem is. Our problem is excessive mining, destruction of forests. You know, these are these are really serious issues that need to be addressed. And yeah. destruction of forests is obviously linked to cattle production in particular um oh, yeah. because of the soy plantations in the amazon so so it is um industrial meat 100 percent needs to stop as well mm, yeah. and that's for reasons of public health and disease as well you know like covid of course um, yeah i was going to ask you about that next so that's a but it's just a perfect lead-in so you look at sars mers ebola nipah zika sars-cov-2 which we're now currently dealing with all of the latest outbreaks in recent years have been diseases passed on from animals to humans. So what is the agricultural conversation? Uh, what is the relevance of it in the face of these diseases? Well, nearly every disease that you just mentioned, of course, is a zoonotic disease, which means that it has managed to transfer from animals to humans. And what we know really well is that intensive livestock production is the root of almost all of that. So with COVID, we have the, um, constantly uh, infringing on the edges or into remote areas and forests that haven't previously had hu much human contact. Um, but in the case of that kind of disease where it's, it's about getting into forests, um, there has been human contact in those areas forever from, from smallholders and peasants and indigenous peoples. 
but they have if there have been um infections that have arisen they've been highly localized and not immediately on a flight to rome so you know it's a we live in a totally different world and we have to think about when we're making these incursions into these forests how quickly those pathogens can now reach a much broader host of people to um infect so in that case, they think it went through, you know, from the bat to potentially a pangolin, but it could have just as easily gone into an intensive piggery and infected all of those pigs. So um, the risk and, and actuality of zoonotic diseases continuing to rise is huge if we continue farming animals the way we are. And, you know, Rob Wallace, um, who's yes. the evolutionary biologist. Big farms make big, big flu. Big farms make big flu. And his latest book, of which I'm actually bizarrely a co-author, um, because oh, a lot you. of us, yeah, because a lot of us have contributed. We work together in a thing called Pandemic Research for the People as well. Um, and his new book is Dead Epidemiologists. And it's specifically about um, the origins and implications of COVID. And, and the future COVIDs that he's predicting. And one of the things he and I worked on recently with a number of other scientists actually is can agroecology um, address, like stop us from COVID 21, 22, 23? And the answer is yes. If we made this, if we made a major shift in our, the way we produce food, we could absolutely stop uh, the rise of these pandemics because they are a direct result of intensive livestock production. So, if that's the problem, we don't need a vaccine. We need to stop producing animals in these really dangerous ways mm. and, and stop putting up band-aids on cancer. Yeah, it's it really brings the forward the issue of uh, us being a society of rise to the crisis at hand and we rise with all our band-aids. You know, we all put on our masks, vaccines, and these are all very normal public health measures in our um, culture, and I don't doubt that they save a ton of lives when they're implemented as a public health measure. But the thing that really frustrates me no end is that we are crap-a-rama at thinking long-term preventative reversal of systems that are not working and are going to continue to plummet us towards these situations. Yep. Absolutely. And, and that's, <laughs> and that's a hard one, you know, it it's, is. it's tough. Because I think most of our societies feel quite disempowered about when, even if they're presented with solutions like stop intensive livestock production, but how, you know, how can I, in my kitchen in Davo, for example, influence whether or not animals are still going to be produced in those ways. And, and that's where the role of AFSA and other organizations for me is critical because we have to, we have to work collectively. Individually is not enough. We have to work together. When we when we go to government to say, you can't allow these systems to continue. If I go with a hundred members, that's nothing. If I go with a thousand, oh, you've got to listen. If I go with 5,000, then they're really listening. If I'm in Indonesia where their peasants movement has 80 million members, mm. the government listens, you know, yeah. that's like yeah. that's a revolution waiting to happen, right? So- mm-hmm. Well, look um, what's happening in India with all of them coming together as a collective voice at the moment. It's the most beautiful thing. Like it's obviously it's heart wrenching because it's come out of so mm. many years of disadvantage for small scale farmers and the and the three new laws that were just going to make it worse for them. Mm. Um, but it's incredible seeing them come together and and speak as one voice. Yeah. 
hundred percent. So the key is the collective voice and not feeling like you're powerless with your single voice. That's right. Yeah. 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 And that's why with organizations like AFSA and others, you know, Farmers for Climate Action is another one doing really good work. Um, People don't have to all go do the work that um, those of us who are on the committee or leading the organization are doing. You know, you can still be doing that with your ethics of practice. Your, Your choices in your daily life can be part of the influence. But simply signing up as a member puts your voice in there, whether or not you're directly um, doing the work. Mm. You know, you're, you're creating the mandate for others like me who are prepared to do that work. Yeah, absolutely. I always say to people, especially people in cities who feel like, okay, beyond my shopping basket, what's next? What can I do? Um, it's like, okay, start donating, even if it's five, 10 bucks a month. You know, I donate to Carbon 8 here, Farmer's Footprint up in the States. Like you can have little micro donations that as a collective help the people on the front lines do the work they need to do because it doesn't just happen. You know, they need support. That actually makes me think I was I was very remiss at the start of our talk for not acknowledging that I'm here on the unceded lands of the Jaja Wurrung people um, and pay my respects to elders past, present, emerging, but also encourage people in terms of what can you do on our farm in continuing to worry about what could we do in terms of Indigenous dispossession for 200 years. Um, we've started paying the rent. And I think that's something that a lot more non-Indigenous Australians could be doing. Um, it's a very active way to be con- doing something positive, you know, literally, you know, as they say on some of the pay the rent websites, there's an organization in Victoria called pay the rent. Um, and then there others are paying theirs to Aboriginal corporations that like for me, the Jaja Wurrung would be the one I would pay to, but I'm paying it to pay the rent. Um, that's run by indigenous people out of Melbourne. And they, they then determine where to put that money into um, supporting indigenous sovereignty. And, and I think that all these things that we care about, we probably all have, even if it's five bucks a month or something, you know, there's stuff you, you can put in something to be supporting the good work that others have the time, knowledge and capacity to be doing. Yeah, that, and that is so key. It's just to know and identify the people that have the time, knowledge and capacity to do the important work and to support their work. Um, So in reconciling the stolen land truth uh, here in America, uh, in many uh, colonised nations all around the world, um, what I I think pay the rent is incredible. Um, I'm I'm keen to hear uh, some of the conversations you've had, some of the thoughts going around with people on what can be done at a deeper level to repair so that's a conversation that AFSA and us here at John and I are taking really seriously uh, and, and trying to be less talk fest, more act fest. Yes. And, yeah. and hence the um, pay the rent, paying the rent now instead of just talking about the problems. But there's, there are a number of really wonderful Indigenous thinkers and scholars and actors around the country who I'm listening with a lot more. And I strongly recommend Tyson Yunker Porter's book, uh, And Talk. Uh, how Indigenous thinking can save the world. He and I had a conversation in one of the AFSA solidarity sessions just last week, actually. It's on YouTube now. AFSA has its own YouTube channel, uh, actually. And and he is talking about how we need to use not just Indigenous ways of thinking in a, an abstract sense, but in a in a manifest way. Farmers on farms need to be thinking in the ways that we are part of ecosystems. And and so when we interact with the ecosystem here, 
say we were people who applied chemical, right? Which we're not, but let's say, let's say we were. If you're thinking in, in a more indigenous way that's related to the earth as though it's your mother, as though it's part of your very being, would you think about splashing some chemical to kill a part of your own mother? Would you be like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wipe out your arm now, mom. I don't think you need that. I'm finding it's a bit in the way. So, so these, these deeper ways of thinking and being with the land are, um, are certainly something the farmers that AFSA's uh, representing are engaging with. So thinking every decision is thought through from an ecosystem level, from a biodiversity level, and from the idea monotheistic traditions told us that we're masters with dominion over land but indigenous traditions tell us we're part of land and land is part of us and so we're trying to follow more of that wisdom and think with land instead of over land Mm, that's right it's not the what do I want this land to do right it's the how can I honor this land as best I can yeah and Tyson talks about um you know where he says new cultures find it hard to understand what our what our role in living is like why are we here mm. it's that the old cultures understand it we're custodians of the land and the sky and everything in between in our mm. time yeah and, and I've always felt that deeply since I was young but it's so great to have it expressed so beautifully for me like that's that's the job you're a custodian of everything from land to sky you're not not an owner but you're here to look after it as best you know how yeah absolutely uh, I remember when I was researching my first book one of my favorite things was coming across the seven generations principle of the Iroquois nation in the States, the native Americans, and um, that you would always act with the seventh generation in mind and, uh, and that guided and governed how you chose to move forward um, with any problems that arose, any situations. And I was just so heartbroken when I saw our deputy prime minister the other day say that he didn't, care about what was happening in the next 30, like what would be happening 30 years down the track because none of us are going to be here oh in God. inverted commas and I thought that is our second in charge in this country That's appalling imagine it's- being an 11 year old who's just worked their guts out on a year five environment project you know like my child did a, a piece on regenerative agriculture last year for example imagine him hearing that you That's- know what does that say? It says you don't care about my future. And- so in terms of Indigenous thinking, there's a thing in Tyson's book as well where he, he talks about how his clan has um, a three-generation, I don't even fully understand it, but there's a point at which his aunt also becomes his niece and she, she well, so all of them, as they, as they go grow, mm-hmm. they have to think of themselves in three generations. Oh, right? Wow. And uh, like, it's mind bending stuff, but also immediately you grasp how exciting it is. Yeah. You have to think about the earth you're inheriting and what, how many more years ahead of it, um, ahead there is. If you think like your niece, Mm. um, not only like you, or or in her case, like her granddaughter, um, it's not seven generations, but I reckon three is a pretty good start. Three is a very good start. And um, you've reignited my um, desire to catch up with Tyson on the show because we had one booked and then I had this hideous cough back in early March last oh, year. So I'm thinking it was COVID because I got quite sick, um, but it was before you were allowed to get tested if you hadn't travelled. Um, and uh, and I couldn't 
catch up with him at that time when the book had quite recently come out. Yeah. So you've got me inspired to reconnect. Oh, me because so amazing. Yeah, you'll really yeah. enjoy him. He's, mm. yeah, he's a really good thinker and he's doing some great work at Deakin actually on, yes. um, on working on how to get more Indigenous thinking into many of the systems across and not just agriculture. That could only lead to a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of questions to finish. Uh, Something that I get asked about a lot and help people work on a lot is the price of access to uh, regen ag produce at this particular point in time. And uh, while, of course, we can work on eliminating the 50-60% of ultra-processed foods in the trolley, reinvesting that money into good produce uh, and then starting to build more holistic meals so that you need less snacks. Yes, we can do all of that. There still is a price gap. Uh, It still is a trade-up. We can't ignore that. Um, And because we're in a system that only allows for a certain part of income to be dedicated to food budget, you know, there's so many different sort of things in a house of cards kind of system that you can't just double what you spend on one thing. What, like, where's that money going to come from for the average family? And yeah. we certainly don't want guilt. Like and, yeah, we don't want guilt and shame to come into it. I mean, if you can eat any produce more than you eat processed food, that is a big win. But yeah. what is the next step in accessibility from a, a household budget perspective, do you believe? Yeah, I think it's a really hard question, as you say, because you know, when we were on a low income, we were able to still choose um, food from ethical and ecologically sound systems by by limiting the various things we were buying, you know, and not, and we ate less meat because it was more expensive. And so better meat less also applies when it's about a, your budget, but it doesn't solve the problem for the lowest income members of our society either. Like that, I was, while we were on a fairly low income, we were never in the lowest income bracket. And so I don't want to speak as though that's just an option for those who are genuinely disadvantaged. Um, and I don't think food sovereignty is going to solve systemic poverty. Uh, it's, you know, it's a it's a bigger problem. Interesting research came out of the um, what are they, ACOS, uh, the social services uh, group. They did some really interesting research early on in COVID and found that with the supplement, um, people's consumption of fresh food went up. I can't remember. It was a lot. Uh, like 30% or something because because they simply had a higher income and they spent it on good food. And so so really the problem, as you know, it's not, we don't need to make healthy food cheaper because then we just get back into the same problem of industrial food where we've externalized those costs, costs down the track to public health and environment. And that's where the costs actually sit. Um, so we don't need to make food cheaper. We need to raise people's incomes. Uh, and we also need to solve the housing uh, price crisis in this country because a lot of people are spending up to 50% of their income on housing. And that's pretty difficult to then choose the best food when you don't have a choice whether you pay your rent. Um, but I would say like in terms of personal advice to people who are listening, like, well, what do we do about this? Making food cheaper won't fix the problem. Like that's the first thing. So, so that's not, you. I couldn't sell our food, for example, any cheaper without us not being able to farm. We're not getting rich. We don't drive a Mercedes. You know, we don't. In fact, you know, our car is eight years old, and um, it's and it's our our vehicle that use we do for deliveries and for um, farming. So, it's not about farmers getting rich by charging more. It's about farmers making what they actually need to to not externalize those costs to public health and environment. So, 
it is things like making those various choices at the supermarket um, and not just at the supermarket, you know, the other choices about what we spend our money on um, and thinking that through re in really complex ways. Having said that, I, again, hate the idea of individual burden on these things. It comes back to doing work to advocate for fair wages for everybody, you know, to, to work with unions, including agricultural unions, about fair wages for those who are, are um, harvesting produce in this country. You've seen the scandals around that. So if you were to raise the income of food, farm and food system workers, you would actually go an enormous way towards solving systemic poverty in every country. Uh, there's actually a really wonderful book by a friend of mine, Jahi Chappelle, called uh, Beginning to End Hunger. And that looks at the case of Bela Horizonte in Brazil, and where through multi-level approach from grassroots organizers to, um, and small-scale farmers uh, and um, right to food uh, activists and the government, they put together things like popular restaurants where no matter what your income was, you could go in for, and for one real, you could buy lunch. And that lunch was subsidized at that price to buy the government who only source from small scale local producers because they're often the ones who need to eat in those restaurants as well. And so the food is affordable no matter who you are, but the food is actually being paid full price for by subsidy from the government. Now, I don't think subsidies are the long-term solution but I certainly think when you're trying to lift people out of poverty, there's a, they play a role. Uh, and then there has to be a kind of, there has to be a longer term vision of how do we make sure people don't fall back into po poverty if we take away the subsidies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at farmers in the States. That's why so many broadacre farmers can't and won't change the way they farm is because of pre like World War II subsidies that are still going. And when, sure. once you're stuck in a system, knee deep in the mud, it's very hard to get out of it. It is. I mean, when they're literally paid to grow corn, it, whether they need corn or not, whether it's mm. been dumped at the end or not, mm. they, they can't guarantee they'd be paid to grow something better. No. So there's a lot of work to do. And uh, something that Tammy and I spoke about before we started recording was starting to seek out and influence politicians up and down the tickets on this subject to let people know out there who are running for office or hold office that there are people on the ground who care about how things are farmed and they're not telepathic. They don't know we're having all these conversations. Right. My local member, Dave Sharma, is sitting in his office right now. He has no idea I'm here talking about regenerative agriculture. So yes, I would say this, you could start straight away though, hey? Exactly. Oh my gosh, I write pretty much <laughs> weekly emails to Dave about a number of issues. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with adding in another one. Um, but yeah. it really, really, when we said, oh my gosh, I don't even know the name of a single politician advocating for Regen Ag, except for, um, who was the gentleman down in Tasmania? Down in Tasmania. Yeah. Peter in Tasmania. And I have, to, I have to go to bat for my new Minister for Agriculture, who is actually my local member, Marianne Thomas, here in um, Victoria. We've had good wins because of exactly what you're saying. We started getting in their ear and we've worked with the state government in Victoria now for many years. And to the extent that it's a totally different situation now, if they're about to propose a change that might affect small scale farmers or the food sovereignty space, they contact us to say, hey, there's some new stuff coming up. You might want to cast your eyes over it. We'd be really keen to get your feedback. So it's changed dramatically from when I first got involved with that about years ago so write to your members let them know you care about it if you see the likes of AFSA saying 
we want changes to the regulation of planning controls for pastured pigs and poultry right to support that like sign the petitions do all those things because it does help it really does and whether someone eats animal foods or not uh however you eat a kind of treatment to animals in farming is something we all want uh and i think um and i think if we all start to fight for that it's um it's really gonna i mean just imagine the energy as i said before uh, how yeah, that actually reminds get. me to something AFSA is really um, explicit about, and I think it's it's come a lot from how we try to do things here on our farm as well. I think it's really useful if people think in terms of fighting for rather than against. Yes. So right now. Could not agree more. Yeah, and, and that's not to say you don't fight against things that are wrong. You absolutely should fight injustice, but it's emotionally exhausting and the wins on the board are so much harder to gain. Whereas fighting for things that are positive, you'll have more wins that'll keep you fighting so that you get more of those things. So when we fought for planning reform in Victoria and started to win, that was because we were fighting for better regulation of pastured livestock. And in the case of the AgVet chemical review that I have to be in the panel tomorrow, we're fighting against a big beast and I will come out of it demoralized. But it was, it's still important that we're there. Those voices have to constantly be there. But I try to keep like 80% in the fighting for 20% fighting against. Oh, I love that. That's 80-20 yeah. rule. It, it yeah. pops up everywhere, doesn't it? It does. It does. And <laughs> now, it go enjoy a piece burn of out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Tammy, what a pleasure to speak to you today. Um, the work you do is epic. Thank you so much um, thank you, on behalf Alex, of so many people. The conversation's been really good. Yeah. I look forward to seeing your book. Yeah, no, it comes out end of September. So uh, it really is just going to be the initial push. And I think from it, a lot of important conversations will start to happen. That's my hope and, um, and wish. So I'm really excited. Um, now, we can connect to you guys, obviously, on your Facebook page and on your YouTube channel. Is there anywhere else that you would like for people to know about? No, I mean, there's the there's the AFSA website, which is just afsa.org.au. Um, and, and through there and the Facebook page is where you'll find. We do have an Instagram as well, um, which is AusFoodsov, uh, AUS Foodsov. And... Um, we this year started a new program of Instagram takeovers. And so we've got a mixture of, um, you know, we're farmers and allies, so everyone. And we're having a mixture of farmers and, um, and urban or rural allies sharing their food sovereignty stories. Like how are they trying to live their best food sovereignty life and the struggles they have. And some of them are telling stories of time overseas where they've seen people with, you know, like in Vanuatu when they worked with others. So it's been super interesting watching people tell their stories about what food sovereignty means in their life. Amazing. And long may those conversations start leading somewhere really powerful right up the chain. I'm excited. Thanks, Tammy. And thanks, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Life. 
uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lowtox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.